2: Hello and welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. This week we'll be discussing If Beale Street Could Talk, the new film from Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, and we're lucky enough to have Barry join us to tell us about the film. And not only that, we've got Kenneth Branagh talking to us about his Shakespeare biopic, All Is True. I know, I couldn't believe it either. Two incredible guests, both tucked into our little show. I'm Jake Cunningham, and joining me is Curzon's own Juliet of Johannesburg, Kelly Powell.
3: Hello. It's from
2: Cape uh, Town. Yeah,
3: it's fine. It doesn't work for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's
2: right. Just, just, just go with it. Just go with it. Um, and the Rosalind of Red Hill. It's Culture <laughs> Whispers, Ella Kemp.
4: I'm so ashamed of morning.
2: <laughs> oh, and, of course, the Dick of Derby. Wow. Stephen Wright is here as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, what is it? It's Dick, Hello, Dick the Butcher, <laughs> of Henry course, the Sixth, yeah. Part Two. Yeah,
1: great, I forgot a, about A that. classic
4: Shakespearean <laughs> character. Our host Jake Will from Walthamstow.
1: Yeah, I like it. Are you from Waltham? No, you're living in Walthamstow. I live there. Yeah, I'm right. from
2: Bexhill, so the Bard of Bexhill. Who's to say? Um, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> we got to wish a happy birthday to Curzon Soho, which turns sixty this week. Uh, It was commissioned by Harold Wingate, who once ran Curzon Mayfair. The cinema opened up as The Columbia on the 4th of February 59. Then it became The Curzon West End in 85 and in 98, uh, the three-screen cinema we now know as Curzon Soho. And to mark the milestone, we're bringing back some of Soho's most popular films. Across the next couple of weekends, you'll be able to see The Remains of the Day, We need to talk about Kevin, and for one night only, after sticking around for six months last year, we are playing Call Me By Your Name once again as well. And I would love it if any listeners out there who have got any fond memories of Curzon Soho throughout the years, I mean, even if you were there when it opened, we'd love to hear from you. Um, Share some of your Curzon Soho memories with us by emailing podcast at curzon.com.
1: I saw Lucille Hadzi halievich do a... um... Q&A about her short films at Curzon Soho during the London Short Film Festival and she's one of my favourite filmmakers and a very mysterious filmmaker and getting to see her talk in person and seeing Curzon Soho and the London Short Film Festival kind of facilitate that was a really, really cool moment for me.
2: There we are. See if you've got any other memories like that, do send them in podcast at curzon.com. We'd love to hear your Curzon Soho memories. Maybe one of them will come in the form of seeing The Souvenir, the new Joanna Hogg film, which just won the Sundance World Cinema Dramatic Prize. It's been picked up by Curzon Artificial Eye, and we will look forward to bringing that to you maybe later this year, maybe next year. Who knows how these things work? On with our films, though, Uh, if Beale Street could talk. Kelly, would you mind telling us a little bit about this one?
3: Yeah, so uh, this is Barry Jenkins' third uh, feature uh, after Moonlight won the Oscars a while ago. Um, And this is an adaptation of James Baldwin's novel of the same name, set in 1970s Harlem, about two lovers uh, divided by a circumstance and sort of how systemic injustice Uh, has far-reaching effects, not only for these two people, but uh, their families and uh, just sort of society in general.
2: Brilliant. Um, And yeah, I I spoke to Barry all about following up Moonlight, how he photographs faces in a very particular way, and a bit about Miles Davis too. So here's Talking Beale Street with Barry Jenkins. So we're delighted to welcome to the Curzon Podcast, Barry Jenkins, how are you doing?
5: Not too bad, man. Thanks for having me.
2: Excellent. Um, So the first line of the film... You ready for this after the success of Moonlight, looking at your next projects, uh iron things up, were you asking yourself the same question?
5: Uh no. You know, I wrote the draft, the first draft of this at the same time that I wrote the first draft of Moonlight, so it had been in my head uh for quite a long time. You know, if I wasn't ready for this, I don't know what the hell I would have been uh ready for. Um you know, I thrive, you know, when I'm on set, you know. I like to be in the in the act of creation, you know. And so I think to have something to immediately go into and the aftermath of all the noise that was in the system uh, following the moonlight uh, was the best thing.
2: And people might think that it was maybe after uh, the Oscars that you would go into something, but presumably once Moonlight's wrapped, you're already getting into the process of the next thing because there's a good year of that process.
5: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I was still trying to be diligent about, you know, carrying the message of Moonlight, carrying the voice of Moonlight. You know, it's the kind of film that needed to be nurtured um, into the world, and I also recognized that it was so personal that my voice needed to come uh, with it. And yet, at the same time, you know. I never want to be static, you know, I always want to have uh, movement, momentum, and so, yeah, I was already in my head visualizing what a Bill Street could Talk would look like.
2: Excellent. Um, and something that uh, Bill Street contains a lot of is these, these beautiful close-ups of, of faces in particular, um, and I was curious, I haven't read the text, but uh, is there an element of Baldwin's text that inspires you and uh, James Laxton, the mm-hmm. DP, to approach faces the, the way you do in the film.
5: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, Mr. Baldwin is uh, very gifted at reflecting the interior life um, of characters. And I think in cinema, um, the best way to access the interior life of a character is through the eyes, you know, through eye contact. And yet, you know, cinema, the angles we typically use conventionally are very voyeuristic, you know. You never really look at an actor or a character directly. Um, in the eye, and yet I think in in a personal relationship and human contact, you know, that's where the most direct communication occurs. We say things and we talk all the time, and that's very effective and can be persuasive. But I think looking at someone is the most direct way to truly understand, you know, what they're feeling and what they're communicating. So I think when you're taking someone who is so densely uh, packed with interior voice, which is what Mr. Baldwin's literature is, to me I feel like, you know, it was going to be absolutely essential and necessary to have the actors look directly at the audience at certain moments so the audience could get into that interior life of the character as well.
2: Hmm and so often looking down the lens can be something that's gonna break the uh, reality of the film. for an audience. Yeah
5: it's, it's true it's interesting um, you know it's why you know I don't tell the actors when we're gonna do those shots I don't know when we're gonna do them. Um, it's only if I can look at the actor and see that the distance the remove between actor and character has disappeared. It's why other than Naomi Harris we never do them where anybody's speaking. Naomi's incredibly gifted so she can do anything but you know, it's not even about uh, talent or ability, it's quite an artificial thing to look directly down the barrel um, of a lens, and yet, I think there are certain moments when, again, the distance between the actor and the character disappears, and at that moment, if, like something direct is being accessed, and I want to give that thing to the audience, you know, acting is giving and receiving, one actor gives, the other actor receives, they then give back. I think when you're in the auditorium and you're watching a movie, you're right, it breaks the fourth wall, but if the giving is very pure, now the character on screen is giving the audience is receiving, and they give something back. Mm. Now passive empathy has been made into active empathy. And it's why when we do them, we shoot them at high frame rates, either 48 frames, 72 or 96 frames, because this thing is very elusive. But if I get five seconds of it, now I can make that 15 seconds, 20 seconds. And 20 seconds of sustained eye contact is incredibly powerful. It's the it's one of the ways in which I think cinema can do what literature is so uh, innately gifted at, which is reflecting the interior life um, of a thing, a feeling, a character.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's something so powerful about the visuals in the film. Um, and I want to uh, just look at the sound for a moment as mm-hmm. well. Um, one of my favorite ever songs appears in the film. That's Blue and Green by yeah. Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's used in quite a distinct way. Could you tell me about how that song first appears in the film, or yeah. how you um, got to it, and then what, how you play with it as well?
5: Yeah, it's one of my favorite um, tracks um, ever, and definitely one of my favorite Miles Davis tracks. And I've always wanted to use it in a film. You know, Sally Potter uses it in *Ginger and Rosa* uh, very early in the piece, and I was so damn jealous because I wanted to be the one to use that song. And I've been trying to find the appropriate moment. And this conversation that Stefan James and Brian Tyree Henry have, as the characters Daniel and Fani, seemed very appropriate for it. And I also wanted to, again, you talk about breaking the fourth wall, looking directly at the camera. You know, I'm always chasing literature, and literature is a very active experience. You know, the author describes a smell through synesthesia, you intellectually understand what that smells like in your head. A lot of dialogue, you read it on the page, you hear that voice in your head, everything's activated. If you're in a restaurant reading a book, you stop smelling the restaurant because every sense in your body is activated inward. And so I think with cinema, we're trying to chase that experience. And so I like to think of the auditorium as the inside of someone's head. and got these speakers all around. And typically you watch a movie, you get lulled into watching it a certain way. The sound comes from the front. You know, the screen is in front of you. You're not looking directly at the camera. You're uh, at, at the actor, you're always outside of them. But this song, Blue and Green, starts out by being played on a record. And we're very diligent about showing whenever the needle is dropped. So you understand, the song is playing in the room. I know exactly how it sounds. But then Brian and Stefano are doing this thing where the characters are organically evolving over the course of the scene. They're revealing more of themselves. And so myself, Nicholas Patel, the composer, and our mixers, uh, Annalie Blank and Matt Aguas, and Matt Waters, who also mix Game of Thrones, this big show about dragons, but they also do these small Barry Jenkins dramas, um, I said to them, I feel like now the emotion in the room has shifted, and something has changed, and so this song needs to change as well. And so as Nick introduces score, Blue and Green then starts to morph. And now inside of the brain, inside the theater, you're used to the sound coming directly from the front, but as Brian goes deeper into himself, and Stefan goes deeper into himself, now that song starts to move. And it morphs and it bends and as this trauma is welling up to the surface blue and green is now swirling around the auditorium and so i think in those ways i'm not trying to be manipulative uh, but i'm trying to use the theater literally all the surround and the screen to really reflect the way it feels to be inside these characters bodies because when you read literature that's exactly what the experience is Mm.
2: and um that song's got it's got two colors in the title, and uh, it does have two colors yeah. in the title.
5: Yeah, and those two <laughs> colors are very prominent in the yeah. film. I have not thought of that. You are, I've, no, no, nah, no lie. You are the first person to uh, make that association. Yeah, you're right, because Tish is always bathed um, in green, which is a very and this in this film a very symbol of life um, and joy, the more brighter aspects, um, and of course blue has a very serious and dark connotation. I think jazz does that very well. Mm. You know, it's a very beautiful. Um, art form, very beautiful uh, style of music, but and the texture of the playing can also be quite melancholy. And yes, the film does that as well. Hot damn, I did not make that association, but yeah, I'll accept that.
2: Brilliant, Barry yeah. Jenkins. Thanks
5: so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, bro.
2: Nobody has ever mentioned oh,
5: that.
3: Amazing. <laughs> I've never thanks, thought man. of it either. A child is coming. Is your grandchild? I don't understand you. It's your grandchild. What difference does it make how he gets here? The child ain't got nothing to do with that. Ain't none of us got nothing to do with that. That That
6: child. That child. That child.
3: That child.
6: That child.
3: Get your s**t! Sh- Take your s**t sh- with you!
2: Okay, so you just heard a bit from a scene uh, where it is revealed that uh, Tish and Fonny are going to have a baby, and this is where we get a lot of the family characters come in. It's a film with fantastic supporting cast. Um, Ella, tell us a bit about If Bill Street Could Talk, where this comes for Barry Jenkins, and maybe your first reactions to it.
4: So, If Bill Street Could Talk comes out after Barry Jenkins won the Oscar for Best Picture with Moonlight in 2016, and that also comes after his very first film, Medicine for Melancholy, in 2008. This is a classic love story. It's, you know, very loosely star-crossed lovers in, as you said, Kelly, 1970s Harlem, and it is just, it's so beautiful. The more I think about this film, the better it gets, and... I love the film when I first watch it and it only grows better because we see so many of these love stories like this, but Barry Jenkins has such a sensitivity to people's faces and their feelings and that must come as well from James Baldwin's text. I haven't read it myself, but you can feel in the words that Tish is saying, so she narrates it with, with this beautiful voiceover, you can really feel that there's such a detail for what she's thinking and... Barry Jenkins also translates that visually.
2: Mm-hmm. And Stephen, you're reading the book at the moment. I, I am. Yeah, um, unfortunately, how do you feel it's translating.
1: Um, I couldn't finish the book before seeing the film, but I almost feel as though that dropped me into it in a really interesting place because I was I was fully kind of engrossed in this book, and then I saw the film uh, recently, and I think that. Um, What you talk about with Barry in terms of the the close ups and the almost portrait like shots that he sets up of the characters is certainly the most striking kind of visual image of the film. And it really works when you get these kind of intensely complex characters looking at you dead in the eyes and you get to read their faces. And that's not something that's forced upon us in films very often, um, that breaking of the fourth wall. However, in terms of the novel, I think that what he does visually and the way he adapts the novel visually is that it's a novel of moments and it's a film of moments um, that really kind of hit you in an an emotional way. And for me, for instance, it would be uh, in the scene when Fonny first takes Tish to the restaurant in uh, in Spanish Harlem and uh, Barry Jenkins makes the Beautiful decision to slow down a very kind of personal moment between the two of them when Fonny starts to speak Spanish and uh, Kelly. The line was, uh, "I got to see him in his own environment." I think. Oh, it's
3: it's in his own world. In his own world,
1: and you know he slows down the kind of camaraderie between the waiter and Fonny. And then the camera just moves to Tisha's face and settles on it. And you get to see this kind of adoration that she has Mm. for Fonny from across the table. And, you know, love stories that when you're expected to just assume uh, that these these two people are in love, sometimes they don't work. But Barry Jenkins knows that he doesn't have enough time to build this relationship over years and years and years. So these moments are so, so important. And he nails it. And you can feel that Tish really, really is in love with Fonny in those moments. And that then makes the rest of the movie a, a lot more effective.
2: Yeah, it's such a special moment. Um, when, you, when you are um, with someone who you love and you have your your time with them and you know that person as you know them and in those private moments. And it's so wonderful to see them in that other world and that they receive and give love to other people in such uh, a wonderful way. And it, as you say, it just enriches their relationship because it enriches those characters. And if you believe those characters, you'll believe that relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And underneath this absolutely wonderful romance, uh, there is I feel like, a quiet rage that bubbles under the entire film.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> it's not only... Uh, a movie about this romance and these soulmates who who f- have found each other but it's also about the um the ways in which they are denied a life um because they are black basically in this world um and yeah so what i love most about this film is that this it's obviously um it's a very p- a politicized film uh, and it has a lot to say but it never shouts um, and it isn't trying to make sweeping statements about uh, systemic injustice. There is no kind of, you know, message of like I- inciting uh, a revolt at the end of it. It's it's this movie that, you know, through the port the the, the the close-ups and the portraits of these people that you. C- you know in those moments it's like a connection between the, the characters and the audience and you, in that moment you're like I know this person and I actually deeply care about this person and it's through those moments and, and, and the li- and the joy and the life and the love that, that weaves the story together that when something like uh, being wrongly imprisoned uh, because you know uh, he was uh, falsely identified in this crime um, and how that sort of uh, is the reason why th- these two people and these families can't can't live a, a normal, joyous life, and it's the loss of that joy that I think is m- most impactful in this film. And then that is what makes you think, okay, this is not right. You know, like this is something, you know, this this world shouldn't be this way. Mm. Um, and it's those moments that those quiet sort of. Um, Injustices that you walk away from. You go, you go like, I want these people to be together and they can't. Yeah, I find that in the way that Barry Jenkins
4: directs films, the way that he he always frames that injustice and you never forget it. But he has this kind of synesthetic approach with the the music and all of the really vivid colours that always make it feel light without it making without making it feel flimsy. And so he'll have. As you said in the interview, the blues and the greens that he brings back in the music, but that really punctuate Tish and Fonny's lives together, and then that bleeds into the sounds and kind of atmospheres of Harlem. And he said it in a couple of interviews. He always uses the word synesthetic, which I find really interesting. He just uses it in a sense to describe the feeling that you get from literature in really bringing you into these people's worlds. But you, you f- I think, you feel that even more in cinema when you know lots of people who have synesthesia see colors with music and i don't have it but i've never felt it more than with barry jenkins films the same with moonlight as well Mm.
2: so who do we think this film is for other than maybe um fans of moonlight who are coming back for another round with barry jenkins
1: i mean i i think it's for fans of um of visual cinema uh, a lot because it is on its surface a very simple tale, as Kelly and Ella have both said, of, of kind of star-crossed lovers. But I mean, this is a man who knows how to work a camera, and it's a man who knows how to tell a story visually without it being kind of bloated or or so obvious. Um, I would, I mean, I would compare his uh, the cinematography in this film to the films of Wong Kar Wai, films like *Chunking Express*, which use kind of like um, close-ups and kind of blurred colours, um, and films like *In the Mood for Love* as well, which are just so like. Melancholic and doomed, but at the same time, it's that kind of love that makes us feel alive. And I think that um Barry Jenkins is kind of forging this career as a filmmaker who is becoming—he's an auteur. He's becoming an auteur that people want to see what he's going to do next. um And I think for for fans of cinema in general, I think it's a really exciting time for Barry. There's Jenkins. also
3: an element of, of melon, uh, uh, melodrama in yeah. this as well. You know, Douglas so much. Sirk. Um, the, especially with like the colours and, mm-hmm. the, and the story and,
1: and the cast we haven't had time and, yeah. to talk about the incredible supporting cast that kind of makes this film sing but you know they're a huge part of it and um, yeah there's definitely a melodramatic aspect to it that some viewers might find a bit off-putting but I think if you can get into the film's rhythm there's a lot a very rewarding kind of aspect
0: For me,
1: that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked
6: for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: Up next, uh, all is true. Stephen, could you tell us a bit more about this Shakespearean tale of global destruction
1: yeah i that's that's very good yeah i've i've been barred watching uh i've been to uh to, i went to see this last week and uh, interviewed kenneth brenner afterwards sir kenneth by the way which you uh forgot to add the sir earlier so he's gonna come after you for that um but <laughs> <Give me>. <laughs> <laughs> but all is true is um is a film that kind of is centered around the 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 last few years of Shakespeare's life, or the last decade of his life really, but we get to see the the first couple of years after uh, his career is over. So the first image of the film uh, is the globe burning down, which is a very kind of obvious but also striking metaphor for the end of this man, this incredible kind of uh, artist career. And we follow him back to Stratford where he attempts to uh, come to terms with the end of his career and also reconnect with his uh, daughters and his wife who is kind he's kind of neglected for a long period of time and uh we get to see how how he does that and we get to see like a semi-fictional biopic i will add uh, obviously we don't know if any of this actually went down this is way it's all true it's it, all, all is true question mark as you said earlier <laughs> but uh yeah it's it's a kind of fascinating look at uh a a remembered life um from ben elton and kenneth brenner sir kenneth
6: brenner Mr. Shakespeare, I don't want to pester you. Good. Excellent news. Cheerio. I just wanted to ask you... The best way to get started as a writer is to start writing. No, really, could I just... I don't have a favorite play. I admire all my fellow dramatists equally, and yes, I do think women should be allowed to perform the female roles, as is the practice on the continent now. Please, if you'll excuse me.
1: So I'm here with Sir Kenneth Branagh, um, and we will be talking about your uh, new film, All Is True. And one of the uh, first things I wanted to ask you is about the title, actually. Um, obviously, it has, has a lot of double meanings. It was it was uh, the, f- the name of the original play, Henry VIII, and it could also relate to the kind of uh, potentially fictional, or semi-fictional aspects of the film. And I just wanted to know why
6: you and uh, you and Ben settled on that title and uh, what it means to you. Well, I'd call it a sort of Shakespearean title in the sense that he often um, wrote plays that appeared to. Um um, stand back from a declaration, so much ado about nothing. Uh, Twelfth night, or what you will, as you like it, um, offering the audience the chance to uh, take their own view. So when you write a history play uh, like Henry VIII, and you suggest its alternative title is All is True, it's already some kind of uh, a semi-ironic uh, um, invitation to see well, what do you think? And uh, with all, all is true, I suppose, when we believed that we were going to be uncovering in our imagination of the gaps between the facts in the Shakespeare's lives, that we'd be uncovering emotions and passions that would be, um, um, you know, at war with each other. The, the the daughters and the wife and the husband might not all agree, but their voices all needed to be heard. And as far as they're concerned, everything that they say. Is perhaps right, <laughs> correct, or so all is true. All voices must be heard. That's how it struck me. No, that's a, that definitely works for me
1: as well. I love the kind of the meta kind of aspect of it, mm-hmm. speaking to the audience in that way. Um, so you've had a, a kind of lifelong, career-long uh, relationship with with William Shakespeare and his works. You've, you've played some of his most famous characters and uh, directed some of his most famous plays and films. And um, I just wanted to know, with this being part of part of a
6: fictional kind of semi-fictional biopic have you
1: always been interested in Shakespeare the father, Shakespeare the husband, Shakespeare the man?
6: I've become more and more interested in the man behind uh, uh, the man from Stratford anyway. Those facts we know about the school he went to. Uh, the father who was disgraced in business this uh, sense of incompleteness that that may lie behind his decision to buy a coat of arms on his return to stratford the man who's been the most prominent writer of the age wants to return with a with a, a shield a coat of arms that that requires people to call him gentleman it was 20 pounds then it probably cost you 3 or 4000 quid now it's a significant investment to make for for that particular bit of, of whatever needs to be established he might have said this is just business other people might have said that's your ego or your fragility i was interested to know uh you know what that question sort of provoked in the in the in the story um so uh yeah the the, the that that uh, that opportunity to to sort of get behind the man from stratford and 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 also for an audience maybe provide a little context um for um again the sort of ongoing and perfectly legit uh, requirement to Kind of understand why Shakespeare is relevant, why he should be listened to, and maybe understanding him as a man is is a way of doing that.
1: Yeah, no, I can see I can see that, and I can I also think that what it did for me in understanding him as a man, it changes your kind of perception of his body of work as well, which is mm-hmm. for that to always be evolving and shifting. I think is really important for any artist, mm-hmm. um, and was that important to you as well to kind of look at the man behind the work? And-
6: yes, I think, and as you say, that the, the the way in which we perceive the work changes Uh, for me it's been a lifelong journey to from the beginning of encountering Shakespeare understanding I come from a working-class Irish background and uh, uh, he was a rather intimidating cultural force he was something that was told that we were told was good for us and 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 and, uh, expected to understand why that was the case and I did not find an easy entry into understanding it uh, initially and so I'm I'm grateful for anything that lets me have a way into just receiving it directly, not through some other sieve or some other kind of lens that that tells me I have to be something before I can appreciate it. So so, uh, that's really been a lifelong journey for me, actually, to find the way that Shakespeare, as he does to me when it works wonderfully well, gets directly to the heart, gets way, way, way beyond my head, way, way, way beyond words, and to a sort of place of experience that I think is a unique and beautiful feature of great art.
1: Oh, fantastic. And
6: lastly, just about the, the the physicality of the performance.
1: Obviously, there's no evidence of this man and um, um, photographic evidence of what he looked like or his mannerisms. How did you approach the physicality of it? The the,
6: the, the, the painting in the National Portrait Gallery uh, uh, by John Taylor or attributed to John Taylor from about 1608 is the one that we most evidence suggests could be Shakespeare, that he might have sat for it. And it's that image that I tried to be um uh, minus contact lenses he I have blue eyes he had uh, brown I didn't want the barrier of a, of, of a, of a contact lens between uh, those eyes to the soul as it were but I did want to try and create the sort of iconic image of Shakespeare that people think is going to be one thing and then as soon as you start seeing him walking moving eating speaking and talking uh, becomes hopefully something else that's more 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 human wonderful thank you so
1: much for joining us Sir
6: Kenneth Branagh thank you very thank
2: you. much I haven't watched it yet but I uh, I'm a sucker for Branner. I will. I'll check this out. I, I I can't deny that. I just I just like the guy.
4: There's something really lovely when you go to see a Kenneth Branagh film. I don't feel anxious. I don't feel worried. He has a very uncynical approach to filmmaking. It oh, no. seems. He's a
2: decaf tea at nine o'clock.
5: <laughs> and he loves
4: it. And he feels great. And you know, you feel very relaxed. I I will always sing the praises of his 2015 adaptation of Cinderella in which Lily James plays Cinderella and it's yeah it's just also a very traditional adaptation but you know they don't all make movies like that anymore and
2: fun fun fact um, Sam Howlett who listeners will know uh, join me in a morning viewing of Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella at the cinema by ourselves
4: <laughs> and you had a great time we did we had a terrific time Here we are <laughs>
1: yeah i think he's 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 a traditionalist filmmaker in a lot of ways and i think that's his wheelhouse and that's he loves being kind of in... He loves he loves messing with kind of form a little bit, but this is a man who's played Poirot and played some of Shakespeare's greatest characters, and now he's playing Shakespeare himself. He he reaches for the stars with these roles, uh, and he feels like he, he fits in that kind of mould. And he does. He has such a great presence on stage and screen that it's hard to imagine anybody else kind of taking on the role of Shakespeare in the way that he does. It's a cheeky performance. It's a light performance. But there are also moments of real intensity that we've seen from Kenneth Branagh before.
2: Yeah. And it's written by Ben Elton, who on the small screen is writing a kind of comedy Shakespeare in the form of Upstart Crow with David Mitchell. Um, but clearly he's got an affection for the character that can have more of a straight line to it.
1: Yeah, and you can tell in the film as well. I think these are two two people who have written uh, or researched Shakespeare qu- Shakespeare quite extensively. Um, and they know about as much as they can about him. Um, we, we hear about kind of talking about going to the National Portrait Gallery just to look at a picture of Shakespeare uh, and kind of get, <laughs> get his personali- get Shakespeare's personality from a picture. Uh, so you know you can see the efforts that they put in to to kind of recreating this man's life um and and it's fascinating it's an it's a it's an outrageous prosthetic nose that he's wearing (laughs) um but you know not distracting after five minutes you kind of get into the vibe of it
2: yeah and i think like anyone who enjoyed murder on the orient express say Mm -hmm. maybe more than a jack ryan shadow Mm -hmm. recruit to be honest anyone with a passing
1: interest in shakespeare will find something to like about this film uh and and you know I think at this point, all of us have a passing interest
2: in So everyone, yeah. Fans of the written word. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And yeah, you can check out All Is True uh, at the cinema this weekend. But if you don't fancy it, uh, you can always stay at home and watch something on Curzon and home cinema. Uh, this week, we're doing a home cinema exclusive preview run of Mech My Love. Uh, it's not in cinemas. Uh, that will be next week. It's just on demand. That's the new film from the director of Blue is the Warmest Colour. And coming up, we're going to have Samuel Morris's Venice Silver Lion winning Foxtrot. And uh, you can head to Curzon blog to check out the trailer for that. Ella is doing the prayer hands emoji, <laughs> but in real life uh, at the mention of that film.
4: So I saw Foxtrot completely on a whim at London Film Festival in 2017. And I've been keeping an eye on when it was going to come out because I wasn't expecting anything from this film. And it's just kind of mysterious, but consistently engaging and just amazing storytelling from from a, a different place, frankly. It's an Israeli drama and I'm really excited for it to be available in cinemas and on demand.
2: Um, and along with those Soho memories, do send us any thoughts on If Beale Street Could Talk or All Is True as well. You can also do it by tweeting us at Curzon Cinemas as well. If it's your first time listening to the show, please do subscribe. You can do that on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. And whilst you're there, leave us a review or a comment as well. Next week we'll be talking about The Kid Who Would Be King the long-awaited new film from Joe Cornish the director of Attack the Block and we'll be talking to Joe about it too. Stephen you'll be taking that one.
1: Yeah I'm interviewing him later today very excited about that.
2: Excellent. And you can keep up with Stephen on Letterboxd not Twitter at uh, Hydra815 is that right? Yeah I'm going to change that. Yeah? But yeah that's Hydra815. Keep up with everything that you're (laughs) watching Um, and you can keep up with us in in the old-fashioned way on Twitter. Kelly you're on Twitter at KS underscore pal yes yeah brilliant Ella at
4: EFE Kemp
2: and me at Jake H. Cunningham Um, and all that's left to do is say our bye-bye so it's bye-bye from our Juliet (laughs) bye-bye from our Rosalind goodbye
3: say it (laughs)
1: Jake
2: and from the big dick (laughs) bye-bye (laughs) bye-bye